This is the Fire Dog Podcast. The views and opinions presented on today's episode are those of the speaker and do not necessarily represent the views of the Department of Defense or the United States Air Force. Welcome, my name is Matt Wilson. I'm here with my co-host Ben Perry, and thank you for joining us for episode 11 of the Fire Dog Podcast. Our guest today is a 35-year veteran of the fire service. He's led three suburban fire departments and served in multiple capacities at the Massachusetts Firefighting Academy, up to and including serving as the Director of State Training. He's authored multiple articles, has lectured nationally on a variety of topics, including tactics, incident command, training, and operations. And he's also the host of the popular Firefighter Training Podcast. And he's currently serving as the Fire Chief in Johnston, Rhode Island. Please welcome Chief Peter Lamb. How's it going, Chief? I'm good. I'm good. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, great to have you on. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us. You have a pretty popular firefighter training podcast that I listen to. I know Ben does. Uh, so it's it's kind of awesome to have you on and, and to pick your brain a little bit. Well, there's not much brain there, so go easy. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll start off with the first talking point we have here. So could you explain to us who you are, what your firefighting experience is and what you do now? Sure. I, I started as a young volunteer firefighter in the mid 70s, believe it or not. Like, yeah, I was not on duty when man invented fire, but uh, I, I was off that night. But so I've been doing this a long time, uh, became the first career firefighter in an all volunteer department. A lot of challenges uh, got started in uh, 1976. So I've been doing this for quite a while. I've been able to uh, move my career progressively to some bigger departments and, and move in some different directions. So I've been fortunate enough or unfortunate enough to be chief in uh, several suburban departments. I've got experience with career, uh, volunteer, on-call personnel, so forth. Um, always uh, been involved in a department with an ambulance, rode the ambulance for many, many years. Uh, so I've got that side of the house. And then probably one of my greatest accomplishments was I uh, went over to the Massachusetts Fire Academy and um, worked my way through certification, program development, those kinds of things, and eventually became the director of state training in Massachusetts. So uh, I've got a strong training background, or at least I like to believe that. Yeah, it's pretty fantastic stuff. There's whole wealth of experience and knowledge there. So you, you joined in the seventies and obviously you're working now. Can you share with us some differences between firefighting, maybe in the seventies between maybe seventies, eighties and now? Yeah. I mean, sure. There's, there, there's a ton of differences. I think that there's a, a, a lot of, you know, what's, what's different is new again, those kinds of things. I don't know how that phrase goes, but what is old is new again, I guess it goes. But, um, you know, we have much better equipment now, much better equipment. We got to focus on safety. Uh, there was never a focus on safety. I, I tell a story and people think I'm making it up. And that is um, we had two pumpers and an ambulance. Each unit had an air pack on it. And the instructions were, if it gets really bad in there, kid, put that on. So. <laughs> So when I tell that story, I've been uh, several miles from there, I'll tell you. But um, so I think the equipment is much better. I think that training, you know, we'll talk a little bit about training somewhere here. I'll weave it into the conversation, I'm sure. But um, training has changed. I think that the the Internet, uh, social media, the the way we get information, we're bombarded with information. And, and I take a different posture. I'm not sure that every piece of information that we get, 
we need to use. Um, you, you need to kind of make an assessment on some of that. So I think the wealth of information, I mean, think about what we're doing here today, uh, sharing information across the country and so forth, and uh, really across the world. Um, it's it's pretty amazing. So I think technology has changed. I think uh, uh, we can have an argument about fire science, but uh, that, you know, I'm, I'm not sure it's changed as much as people think it has changed. So, uh yeah, I, I would say equipment, training, uh, availability of information. I think all of that has has gone leaps and bounds. When you talk about fire science and it hasn't changed as much as people think it's changed, are you talking about uh, grooming contents, fire in a structure? Are you, are you talking about from that perspective and, and how fire develops and, and the kind of combustibles that could be in a in a room in a home? Is that what you mean? Yeah, I think I think uh, all of the things that are being done with UL and NIST and all of that, there's a lot of dramatic work uh, somewhere on a shelf over here next to me is a is an old, old red book from many, many years ago, a little thin training manual well before essentials. And it said never vent a building unless you have a charge line in place. I've, I've read lots of NIOSH reports where we smashed out some windows, we took some windows, we had wind-driven fire, and we did not have water on the fire. So we're learning something which we say is new, but that principle of, don't, you know, don't take too much glass, don't do too much ventilation. I also think, you know, listen, we have to be serious. The structures have changed into lighter weight a little bit, and, and what we're burning is clearly different is clearly different. I mean, the the uh, heat release rate on fuels today is clearly different from when it was when I was on the job. I understand what you're saying. So what they taught back in the day, and they're claiming is something new and revolutionary now, it's always kind of been the same. It's just being sold in a different way. Well, I think it's, be, yeah, it's, it's sold is a great word because somewhere there is big business there, but it, it's presented in a different way. But the fact is, firefighters are a strange breed. You you do crash rescue stuff and, and all sorts. You're full service, obviously, with the Air Force, and, and uh, uh, that's, that's certainly something there. But firefighters don't adhere to rules as well as we'd like people to believe. We kind of do our own thing, and that's it, it's it's one of our greatest traits, and it's one of our weakest traits is that we got a better way. I'll, I'll show you how to do this kind of thing. And I think sometimes we have strayed away from the training. I think anybody listening to the sound of our voices here today would say to you, some guy in the firehouse somewhere in the world has said, yeah, listen, kid, that's not the way we do it here. That that was in the book, but that's not the way we do it here. And I always kind of counter with, well, who the heck wrote the book? You know, you think about the textbooks that are written for fire, military, you're all Air Force folks or whatever, military. Those books are written in blood. The, the people, you know, there's, there's a lineup, there's a stack of bodies behind those words. So I'm not sure why we don't do it here. Sure, there's variances in every organization. I get it. Uh, I, I'm not not naive enough to think that doesn't happen. But I think sometimes we ought to go back to the way we were trained, and we might be better off some days. So, Chief, we're going to get into training a, a little bit later. I got a discussion point here that we'll bring up 
But could you tell us a little bit about your role as the director of state training in Massachusetts? What did that entail? Well, so really responsible for about 18,000 firefighters uh, training career and volunteer. Uh, The Career Academy was in Massachusetts. Essentially, you get hired on the job and then sent to the academy all across different organizations is all different. Sometimes you go to the academy and then get hired, you know, that. So these were all employees uh, full time. Uh, Massachusetts is uh, is some strong Northeast tradition, traditional firefighting, uh, if you will. I, I don't know if that's a thing, but I think everyone will understand. Um, so I was I was really the director at a cusp where um, we suffered some interesting things. Uh, I was there during 9-11. A lot of people forget about the fact that those planes took off at Logan Airport in Boston. We were a state facility. Things got pretty ugly there pretty quickly. Uh, And then, of course, we went through the uh, Worcester uh, fire tragedy where six firefighters were lost. And there were so many dynamics that came up during that time. There was a focus on thermal imaging. There was a focus on rapid intervention. So my job was in some ways a curator of what we could push out as quickly as we could push out to thousands of firefighters that um, were in a state of shock. Uh, that was a pretty big hit. And, and you know, you can talk about Thorndike's laws of learning and all that stuff. Are you ready to learn? There was an, ang- you know, an anxiousness to learn. There was a, 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 a desire to learn. But was everybody ready to learn at that point? The wounds were still pretty fresh. Um, the day of the Worcester Coal Storage Fire, one of the first firefighters lost on Rescue One in Worcester worked with me until four o'clock in the afternoon. And at 615, he was he was lost. So he was training recruit firefighters on Friday. And I had to walk out in front of them on Monday and tell them what had occurred. So um, it was it was very dynamic. And it's uh, it's it's trying to get the right training to match you know, certainly around uh, if you know the geography, certainly around the city of Boston. You know, that's very urban area. As you go out to the New York state line and the Vermont state line, there's no water supply. It's very uh, volunteer, on call, maybe, whatever. Um, so we had to run the gamut of, of everything that was going on. Um, after 9-11, we had to get out 351 cities and towns. We had to get out a procedure in about 25 days to deal with the anthrax, with the suspicious envelopes and all of that. So my role was uh, was pretty dynamic. Uh, it was a uh, pretty, pretty broad stroke. So, Chief, you talk about pushing out a whole lot of information in a short period of time or communicating to firefighters across the large geographical area that some of them work in urban centers and some of them work in rural areas. is that experience, did that motivate you to start a podcast, to start the podcast that you host to get information, as much information out as to many people as you could you get to? 
Yeah, I, I think there was, I, I realized that I, you, you kind of made an interesting comment. A lot of people say that when I say what I did, you know, my career background, they say you must be a thousand years old. I do have a wide variety of experiences in a lot of the area. And I realized that I could use my voice to to be heard. You know, I'm talking to you folks today, 12,000, you know, military folks, Air Force, firefighter, our folks, et cetera. But, you know, most of the country, 75 percent, I don't know, I hear different numbers every day. There's small fire departments with 10 or 12 people. They're, they're, they're trying to do something. And they get a fire instructor from some large city that comes out and says, you know, this is what you do. The second pump always gets the hydrant and this and high rise and blah, 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 blah. And I thought that I related to those departments better than that other instructor. I think sometimes, as I mentioned earlier, when you talk about the information that gets thrown at us, does it fit? Does it fit your organization? Or do you have the leadership in place that can tailor it and make it fit your organization. Um, you know, I, I talk about, so I'll, I'll just digress for a second. You know, we talk about leadership. Uh, the fire service is a paramilitary organization. You know, it's similar to the Navy SEALs. In what universe? Because it really isn't. It really isn't. Sometimes we talk about paramilitary. We don't have that type of discipline. We don't have that type of 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 uh, situation. So I think sometimes there is, uh, uh, there are people talking about leadership things that I'm, I'm not sure every leadership book applies to the fire service. I guess it's my point. Everything one size does not fit all. Yeah. The the paramilitary thing is hard for us to relate to because we're military uh, and we, we lean on that hierarchical structure in the military and we use it in the fire department too. So in that sense, I guess it's paramilitary and we line up every morning and we're very military about how we take care of our uniforms and our trucks. So I guess in small ways, paramilitary, but that's on, that's from my experience and I've only had experience in the department of defense. So can't speak for other. So chief, I want to get a little bit into training. Actually, let me go back. I want to go back because now that I know that you're in Rhode Island, we, we thought maybe you were in Massachusetts or somewhere in new England. Were you around for the station nightclub fire? Yeah. So I was at the academy at that point. I was not a responder to the station nightclub fire. I have probably 30 very close personal friends that were there. And as I sit where I'm sitting right now interviewing with you, the site of the fire is a mile and a half. So uh, very familiar with a lot of firefighters that went. Uh, my current department responded to that uh, fire with with uh, resources. Um, so it's uh, it, that also had a significant effect on what was going on uh, in Massachusetts. The state fire academy is part of the state fire marshal's office. So suddenly I was not training firefighters anymore. Suddenly, I was being ramped up to train civilian nightclub managers, except, you know what I mean? So it, it was part of the uh, state fire marshal's office. So, yeah, it's uh, I have some dear friends that are uh, deeply affected by that fire. Yeah, what an incredible circumstance that was. It's, it's interesting you bring up how your role changed kind of overnight when the nightclub fire happened. You know, we find ourselves 
in that situation, often I think post 9-11, um, so much changed. And then right now in the midst of this coronavirus, you know, so much is going to change as well uh, about how we respond, how we keep ourselves safe and how we go out and interact with the community. Absolutely. I'm, I'm glad you talked about that. I was going to say something at some point about that. I would tell you right now that I've been through a lot of situations. I've I've done a lot of things in my career as a young firefighter. I did some things that certainly weren't very smart, probably considered that it took some courage to do or lack of brains. I'm not sure. But I would tell you right now that the past 30 days have been the toughest challenge that I've faced in 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 being able to manage and handle my personnel, the changing conditions and the way we, we run an advanced life support ambulance. Uh, we run three advanced life support ambulances. We're adjacent to the uh, city of Providence, which is the capital of Rhode Island, so a fairly urban area. And I would tell you that I'm facing the biggest challenges of my career right now. Chief, if we could, let's hit on that, because you saying that it's one of the biggest challenges of your career, that's a pretty, it's a pretty heavy statement considering you've been in for so long, 35 years. So can you talk to us about what is so challenging about it? Yeah, it's it's because firemen are solution-based, right? I, my whole life, I'm a solution. I'm the shell answer man here. I got an answer for, I'll figure it out. I can do that. I, I often tell a story many years ago, lots of years ago, a plane crashed in, in uh, Florida. I think it was a JetBlue passenger airline went right into the swamp, just like embedded itself into the into the swamp. And I, I remember a video of a press conference and everybody was there, sheriffs and citizens and mayors and blah, blah. And they described the difficulty of getting the black box. The conversation was, we, we can't get there. There's snakes, alligators, sawgrass. You'd have to, you know, all these challenges. And like three officers from... Metro Dade, Miami, Florida, said, yeah, you just get us a helicopter. Fine, man, we'll, we'll go out there. We'll get the box. And I love that story because, you know, when there's a challenge that nobody can do, the firefighter will step up and say, I got it. I'll do it. And I think that's where we are today, except that there are so many unknowns. I think that I'm making decisions. I'm a, I'm a fact-based guy. I'm an you know, an intelligence guy, not that I'm intelligent, but I gather intelligence. And there is so much that we don't know right now. Uh, having having an invisible disease that is spread by people that are asymptomatic. Um, I'm trying to take care of my personnel. We have personnel affected. We have personnel that have been quarantined. We have some civilian staff that are being tested today as we record. Um, it is, it is a whole new environment. It is a whole new environment. So part of me is, yeah, I'm the fire chief, but I have deep concern. You know, I rode the ambulance for 27 years. I, I, I know what they're doing out there and it, it's not pretty. You go to some bad calls on occasion and you know, they're bad calls. We've actually taken a posture now that every single response will be dealt with as a COVID-19 alarm. Uh, you will mask up one person. We minimize personnel. What do we do as firefighters, right? We work as a team. We send an engine company to support the ambulance in many cases. They're standing out in the street. We send one person to the door wearing uh, an N95 mask and a gown and all the stuff and whatever. And, and it is just, 
and and I will tell you that there is there is anxiety among the troops, and rightfully so. There is anxiety among the troops, and rightfully so. And I think that you know my challenge, my my piece of this is pretty insignificant. I I stand around and point a lot, but I have empathy for my personnel. Um, and and you know firefighters in some ways. I had I had a firefighter the other day. I was kind of teasing with him. I was trying to make light. He's generally assigned to the dispatch room and he was assigned to the ladder truck that day. And so I was teasing him. I said, oh, you know, long walk from there to there. You know, it's a big deal. And he said, no, I'm not on the ladder today. And I said, what's that about? He said, uh, one of the guys on the engine company that goes out pretty regularly with the ambulance, his wife is pregnant. I swapped with him so I could take his spot. Some pretty amazing stuff. Some pretty amazing stuff to to take place. And I'm witnessing a lot of great deeds every day. But this is going to be, I think, a lot longer than anyone realizes. And I think we're trying to work our way through what is normal. Um, you know, so. How does this compare to some of the other medical pandemic epidemics sort of situations that you've maybe interfaced with throughout the rest of your career. Um, I, I think numbers wise, we're still maybe less than some of the other outbreaks that have happened, but, you know, cause for concern wise and, and attention. Um, this is by far the largest thing I remember in my lifetime. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I dealt with SARS to some degree. I dealt with swine flu to some degree. Uh, talked about running, uh, um, epidemic exercises, if you will, points of distribution, pods, exercises, et cetera. Um, I think I think we're in for a big mag- magnitude. And I think this thing about these asymptomatic. I mean, I might have it talking to you. I, I don't you know what I mean? Like you don't know what you don't know. And I, all of your listeners in a military situation, in a barracks situation, in a firehouse situation, you know, I could hide in my office and put caution tape up. I need to be out there with my personnel and they need to know that somebody's out there checking on them. A fire station is the biggest place. Fire station sociology indicates camaraderie. We're, we're sitting apart. We're not eating at the kitchen table anymore. We're, it's, it's just, it is a whole new dynamic. And I think that the magnitude, I agree with you, numbers right now are low, but I think this magnitude and duration is what's going to make or break us. And us moving around the world as we do in the military, you know, we've got, I don't know the number off the top of my head, quite a few bases um, all over the world. I'm here in Germany right now. Our, our partners down in uh, Italy are getting beat up, you know, all over Europe um, has, has had a big toll. And it's just a matter of time, you know, I would say before it, it jumps the fence and, and gets inside. Um, we're doing an excellent job, I think, from the public health and, and protective measure standpoint in uh, Europe and in the Air Force in general, making sure that we're staying as risk averse as possible with this. But I think there's only so much you can do in the in the situation that we're in when it, it seems to be pretty easily to easily spread. And then the couple that with the fact that we move around every couple of years are in our logistics network travels the world 
in the military, you know, we're, we're, we could be a prime candidate to, to help this propagate. And I, and I hope that we're not, and I know we're taking measures to, to mitigate that, but it, it is definitely a concern that the, that the air force has on their mind. Absolutely. I, I got hit with something today. We're probably, I don't know, we've been looking at it for a while, but I'd say we're 30 days into the fight here, uh, you know, pretty significantly. And a mutual aid chief called me today and said, uh, listen, I got to bounce something off you. So what's that? He said, do you want my people, if I have to cover your station, do you want my people to go in your building? Like, like who's, you know, we, we've locked everybody out. We got our own little system here and, and we're having a conversation about what a covering company can do and cannot do. Um, it, it just was not even on my radar. So we're, we're building a system to do that. The other thing I, you must be doing it in the military. So all my personnel have to be pre-screened every day on and off shift. So that is when they come on shift, their temperature is taken. They've given a series of questions the officer has to sign that they're ready for duty. And then when they go off shift, they're also pre-screened by temperature, et cetera, et cetera. And it's, uh, it's some comfort. They're being checked every day. Yeah, Chief, this is an unprecedented situation, obviously. And from my experience, I work as an assistant chief of operations. And we're not doing that measure that you just mentioned, but we are doing some of those measures, the social distancing in the station and the, the different protocols with response and the PPE that you wear and the amount of people that go in. Um, fortunately for us, we don't have quite the call volume that a lot of municipal departments have. And so we don't come in contact with that many people, uh, but it is unprecedented and, and it's changing every day. There's something new every day and nobody knows what to do and what's the right thing to do. It's something that we've never seen before. And I think maybe this podcast is going to help this, this episode that they're going to hear, hear what you're saying. And, and maybe there's be departments within the air force that can apply some of what you've talked about. And, and that's the thing I've never thought about integrating mutual aid partners and, Hey, do you want us to come in your fire station? Well, that's a question that I never thought about, you know, and, or, or even when you're on the fire scene, you know, like, are we staying away from each other? We get assignments that, you know, that, that we want to stay away from each other with. It's, it's a complicated process. And like you said, asymptomatic and it's dangerous and you just never know who has it. And then you could bring it back to your family and unprecedented for sure. But chief, I know your time's valuable. We want to move this along. I do appreciate you sharing your thoughts on the, the COVID-19 pandemic. We want to talk a little bit about training. So in the Department of Defense and the Air Force, so our, our mission provides for some unique and complex situations that could be similar to some municipal departments. So, but fortunately, we have some sa relatively safe, young, healthy communities within the Department of Defense. We also have a very good fire prevention and our facilities are held to a high standard. So as a result, we miss out on a lot of valuable firefighting experience. To make up for that lack of experience, we train. So what are some company level training advice you can recommend that can prepare inexperienced crews for the worst situation? Yeah, well, good point. And I have some pretty strong opinions. So you might get hate emails about that. Just hold those for me. Will you just don't send those out? But we got your back, Chief. Yeah, you, you kind of sit around and you say to yourself, you have to do, I, I think you've all heard military, non-military, everybody's heard about Gordon Graham. It's that high risk, low frequency event. And, and so in my job, we do about, you know, 13 greater alarm fires a year. Once, once a month, we're doing something pretty significant. Um, so we're out there doing that. So I sit down with the training department. I said, what aren't we doing? 
you know, we, so you want to know about medical runs? I do thousands of medical. I, I don't need to train on how to treat a heart attack. So I look for those high risk, low frequency events. We want to focus our training on the things that are going to kill one of my members. And, and so I've got some unique things to do that. I'll offer this up. So NIOSH does reports. So everybody would say, well, that's just a sanitized report. It's garbage. It's, you know, there's a lot of opinions on what the value of that is. What I did when I was the director in Massachusetts is I went back as far as I could on the NIOSH website and I got all the things that were listed as probable causes or factors. I just pulled those out and I created a Word document. And then what I did was I passed that around to all departments statewide. And I said, if you have these factors figured out in your department, you, you highlight them in green. They're good. If you're not, if you got some stuff that you think that might still happen, you do it in yellow. And if you think this could happen in your department, you do it in red. So you prioritize on things. See, that's not a story. I took the Massachusetts data. I didn't take the, the, the New York data. I didn't take the Chicago data. So I'm telling you in writing, this factor has already caused a death in Massachusetts. I, I gave you the answer, right? I gave you the answer to the test already. So in my own department, we try to do like now we're working on uh, rescue of civilians over lattice. We, we, we don't do it. I mean, we know how to do it, but we've got some structures. We've got some acquired structures. We're out there working on that. Uh, we, you know, air pack drills are pretty common. That's not something we do. There's a lot of interest, though, and one of the things I find myself being the skunk at a lawn party, a lot of people want to do high risk. I want to do high angle, chief. Let's do some, you know, some collapse rescues, some high angle and whatever. And sometimes I can be a little caustic at times. I know that's a reach, but the listeners of my podcast would know that. But that is, uh, listen, I don't need to have you be a tech rescue team. I have a friend with the tech rescue team. I will call. I have a resource that I can get. So we want to do training that is fun, exciting, and challenging. But we need to do training that is going to be the most protective for our personnel. Give them the soundness that they know what to do, and and be able to save a citizen, which is what our that's what we do. That's what we do most. Chief, you got me really excited when you brought up Gordon Graham. I actually just met him uh, two months ago, three months ago. He came to Hampton, Virginia. That's where I live now. But in his presentation, so I follow him pretty close. I, I get emails from his company. I can't remember the name. Lexap- Lexaprol, I believe. Anyways, yeah. he talks a lot about root causes. So when you're looking at, at something that went wrong, you tend to look at, it's the natural instinct to look at kind of surface level things or you look at the result of the root cause and he tries to shift people's focus back to the root cause. And, and so finding those things, like you mentioned, highlight this, if it's happened, highlight that, if it's happened, focusing on the root cause, I think is a really important thing. I wanted to bring that up in that high risk, low frequency. That's something that, that is embedded into my mind because of him. And I think that's a great advice. That's, I just want to bring up and I was excited when you brought him up because I'm a big fan of his. I, I would also tell you some advice I've gotten a long time ago. If you ever have an opportunity, he's a retired ops chief. He was either just before or after Bob Halton from Fire Engineering. He, his name is Ted Knee. 
And I was talking about NIOSH reports one day over a cup of coffee with him. And he said, you know, you're missing one piece of this. And I said, what's that? He said, if the guy who got killed could read this report, he would know what he did wrong. You have to look at it through his eyes or her eyes and what they knew at the time. You know a lot more now that you know the end of the story. And you have to look at those of what the person knew or should have known at that point in time and and try to fix those. My favorite story is we have read the training manual. We didn't we read a chapter. We didn't finish the book. And I'll use this analogy. If you've got firefighters that do structural stuff, there's this whole thing about we need an evacuation order. You know, you got to evacuate the building. We sound some special tone or air horns or whatever it is you do in your world. And so I said, I went to the academy, our current academy in the state of Rhode Island. And I said, what are we telling firefighters to do when they hear the evacuation? Do they take their tools? Do they take a line? Do they get out? And what is it they say over the radio to acknowledge it? And everybody looked at me like I had four heads. See, we told them to get out. I said, if we have a three-story wood frame house and somebody's on the first floor with a hose line, they can't leave right away. They got to make sure that company comes down the stairs. They got to make sure that company comes past them. But we didn't tell them that. And we need to say to them, ladder ones going out the Charlie side over ladders, because that's not the way they went in. So there needs to be this acknowledgement and there needs to be a location where you are and you need to figure it out. Somebody said, leave your tools. I wouldn't leave a tool if I, heck if I'm leaving a tool, that's not happening. So my point is we teach evacuation in, in what is it, 33,000 fire departments? Must be 38,000 ways to teach it. (laughs) But are we giving them the purpose? Are we giving them the fact that We've got to finish the whole story. It's fun to just lay on air horns or whatever. If you go back to Hackensack, New Jersey, that chief ordered someone out of the building. Nobody answered him. That's a critical failure. He said, I gave the order, get out of the building. If no one acknowledges and says, I'm going out a different door or a different way or whatever. So there's lots of these variations and I just want to kind of bring some common sense to the theory and just and just do it. So I want to focus on high risk things, things we don't do every day. I want to focus on, you know, um, there is another podcast called The Average Jake Podcast. Uh, it's a good guy, Robbie Owens. And he, he has a rule of threes. He said during the day, you should do one hour of physical training. You should do one hour either in the library or on the Internet. And you should do one hour of hands-on. And if we could get all firefighters in, in, you know, career or volunteer departments or whatever, doing that theory, that makes some sense. Yeah, sounds like a great rule. Hackensack, that was New Jersey. That was in a, in a mechanics stall, right? That, auto, that, auto dealership. Auto That's right. dealership. There was tires stored in the attic space, if I was. That's correct. Right. Yeah. 1988, somewhere around that time. Yeah, it's in the 80s. It was July 1st. It was uh, and they lost five guys there. Yeah. And they so they didn't heed the evacuation order. So there were sounds like 
either some kind of malfunction or a normalization of deviance going on there. Right. So either they didn't hear it or they ignored it or what have you. Uh, and the other sad story is that one of the members that died gave the most clear. You can find this on the on YouTube if you look it up, Hackensack. And there's audio tape of a lieutenant who called 32 times for assistance. 32 times. Where are you? I'm with this guy. I'm in a tool room. I'm under the collapsed area. You know, we say give you a, a location ID and problem if you're given a mayday. This this guy gave his shirt size, his jacket size. This guy told the whole story. 32 calls that went on unanswered or unheeded. And uh, so, you know, again, I'm not I'm not placing blame. But when I listen to that audio today, it makes my hair curl. And that's why evacuation to me and acknowledging that and, and making it important for the member. We've told the member it's important for you to leave. What do I take? We didn't tell him. Do I answer you? Didn't tell him. Do, you, you know, like this, this is these missing pieces. And I think that if we're going to do training, simplify it um, and and give it at this is why you're doing it. Right. We have a whole new generation of firefighters. If I explain to them why, hey, listen, if you're on the first floor right near the door, you can't leave right now. You got to wait for that guy to come down. If I explain why, that firefighter will never forget that. And so sometimes in departments, we don't have time or that luxury to do that. Yeah, like you said earlier in the episode, a lot of this training or a lot of what's in it, ifs the manual is written in blood. And so, but it's important to explain, like you said, the why whoever you're teaching a guy like me who hasn't been around for very long. I need to know why it's important. And so, so continuing on with training and thinking about it from an enterprise level, we talked a lot about training and you talked about hitting some of those high risk, low frequency things. When you train, we talked a little bit about the company level. You, you talked in broader terms, but thinking about it from an enterprise level, what are some things military fire departments can do to create like a robust training program so we have a standardized way, we have a standardized program that the Air Force tells us, hey, you have to train on at least X, Y, and Z. So, but with, with over 11,400 Air Force firefighters spread ac- across the globe, what, what are some things we can do to, on an enterprise level, to make our training program better, if anything? Well, I think you've got to take it to the lowest level, right? Take it to certain bases. On this base, we will do, in accordance with guidelines, obviously, I'm not suggesting you freelance, but in accordance with that, make sure companies can. The other thing that I think is train to exception. And I don't know as we do that all, you know, the first two pumper will do this. The second two pumper will do that. Take the second two pumper out of the loop. Um, train to exception. Uh, there are a lot of people that will say, don't train your people so they fail. There is some thought in the military that we should train you to fail, not not make you fail, but train you until you fail so that you will never create that mistake. This, this was a catastrophic deal. Let's learn from this. And, and we all learn from the catastrophes that occur on the incident out on the runway. We learn from those tremendously. So in some cases, I would say make sure that that bases are operating as well as they can. But I think you should create an exception somewhere in there so that you're you're creating thinking firefighters. 
the more rigid your procedures, the more regimented people get. Well, that's not, I've never done that before because that's not my assignment. And that's like the worst thing you want. You want thinking, flexible firefighters on the runway or in the building, wherever you happen to be working. That's sound advice, Chief. Bases do have the autonomy to kind of flex with training. And there's things we can add in. Uh, There's nothing that we can take away unless it's something that we added in years ago or something like that. But we can implement some local level training and local policies and stuff like that. So I I do want to do want to mention that. Good, good. I wasn't aware of that, but that sometimes in a large organization, sometimes the latitude is not always there to do that. The way that we are structured, you know, each department, each base essentially is their own unique department with their own SOPs and their own, you know, more or less standards to a lot of things. Probably one of the most centralized elements that we deal with, though, is the training program. We get an annual training requirement list uh, pushed down from on high that kind of has your your minimum hacks that you have to meet every year, you know, for every tier within the organization. And that I think the bit, you know, the benefit to that is, like I mentioned before, we move around every couple of years and it's nice to not have to retrain somebody from the ground up when they go from base A to B. Uh, they have a base foundation level knowledge, both from the the fire academy that we go to in uh, Texas and just the organization as a whole working day to day, where we tend to get a little lax in, in my opinion, is we lean on that training, that centralized training to be our core document a lot of times. And we, we forget that we can add to it and really get down and dirty with our local requirements, our local kind of uniqueness that we have. Yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's excellent. And and experience is a double-edged sword, right? Experience is you you want an experienced firefighter. That's what you want. But you also, the, the reason I say insert the exception is some of the things that I've noticed in my own career and, and myself and others is that experienced person can become too comfortable. That's the normalization of deviance, as you mentioned. It's the, I did it yesterday, so it must be okay to do it today. And so when you insert the exceptions at a low level where somebody's not going to get hurt, um, I think I think that's important because it's, uh, it's an eye-opening tool. It, it brings that why right back to the table. So Chief, in, in addition to your training elements, that you cover on your podcast. You, you do talk quite a bit about leadership within the service. I'd like to kind of pull the string on that just a little. Sure. I, I, I think that I've, I was the worst leader in the world. I was promoted well before I should have been and uh, was convinced I was the smartest man in the room. I no longer think that way, but uh, as a young officer, um, I think that there's a, you got to remember at all costs, there's procedures, there's policies, there's ways to discipline, and there's you know there's, it, the the whole discipline issue. Um, you you praise in public and you criticize in private. Every every person knows that. I don't know if either of you or any of your military folks have had to do this, but if you've had to counsel or coach somebody, or maybe a first step discipline or written or something like that. 
you're absolutely professional. You take them into the office. You do it in a in a in a caring manner, in a caring way. And that person gets up, walks out into the kitchen, and repeats the entire story that you just held confidentially to the to the troops, with maybe just a touch of a spin on it. <laughs> so, so we don't prepare offices for that eventuality. We don't. Uh, we don't tell them. you. So the next time you criticize or you counsel someone, not criticize, counsel someone, you are going to make that same situation over again. We do get extensive leadership training. Uh, I know experience is the best teacher pretty much in anything, but the military and the Air Force specifically gives us a lot of leadership training. We go to professional military education courses. We go to five weeks worth of leadership courses and at varying levels throughout our career. So we do get a lot of training on this stuff in the progressive discipline model and, and that kind of stuff. So I, I wanted to mention that, that our listeners are very, very familiar with it. Um, well, and, and I would maybe contrast that with, it's still not enough. I don't think we could ever have enough to deal with the level of peopleness that is the fire service, right? It's, it's a people business, both internal and external learning how to to manage and lead truck companies and, and stations and departments doesn't, I don't think, doesn't get more complex than that, um, that dynamic. And then having those people go out and represent your community just adds another layer of complexity to it. Yeah, I think we do. No doubt the military has some of the best leadership training. You know, that's where we've learned. That's where fire service people that profess to be leaders have read military books. That's how they they got what they got. I think we don't prepare the person, the officer for that uncomfortable conversation. We don't teach them how to become uncomfortable. People talk to me about the traits of leaders. Biggest trait for a leader is stamina. You got to do it right tomorrow. You had a bad day today, was uncomfortable today. You caused some damage in the station, not some damage, but you you did the right thing, but it it's a rocky road. You're going to get a little uncomfortable. And I think I would say this to you about leadership. We, we've got the, the technique, if you will, but I don't think we prepare our offices for the stamina of being uncomfortable. It was your mom used to say, you know, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. Um, it's, it's why we teach leadership. There was a book that's written the one minute manager. If I bring you in, I say something nice to you. I get to the point of the story and then I say something nice at the end. I truly believe with all my heart that that man said that not because he was a leadership genius, but if I say something nice and start this with a little cream from the Twinkie, I feel better while I'm doing it. And and so there's lots of leadership styles. I think that we've got to train our if if you want to be a lieutenant, an engineer or a captain, whatever it is in your in your organization, you have to prepare them that this is you've got to be consistent and you have to have empathy for your personnel. Don't change your decision every day because it's Johnny, Sally, Sammy. Don't don't do that. But you have to be empathetic of the way you treat people. You well said, Ben. This is this is people. This is not fire trucks, airplanes, you know, uniform. It's not that. It's people. And I think it, 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 I think it was Roosevelt that said, 
people don't care how much you know. They they want to know how much you care. And if I was going to say something to a fire service leader today, that's what I'd say. Chief, I believe you've covered it a bit on your show, but I'd like to hear your take on dealing with some generational differences in the fire station. We've all got labels that could probably apply to us, some more true than others. Complacent is probably one of the nicer terms I've heard to describe our younger class of firefighters. What advice would you give on how a leader should approach complacency on the job? Yeah, yeah, I'm raising my hand. Pick me, pick me. I got one for that. (laughs) Um, I hear this all the time. It's generational. Um, Somewhere there's a newspaper article from 100 years ago when I was referred to as a young Turk firefighter, you know, because I was rebellious. So I I was that person. I would say two things. Um, And I'll give you an anecdote, a short anecdote that does it. I was driving one day in an area with no radio reception. So I was listening to talk radio. Hate it. I I have no use for it. And the guy's talking and talking and talking. I got to listen to something. And he said that the people in World War II, it's all a lie. They shouldn't be called the greatest generation. So my father was a Pacific theater veteran, and I, I was brought up to appreciate our military and our country. And, and so I'm bending the steering wheel. I mean, I'm like out of my mind. And this guy says, and he goes on and he goes on, and he was just baiting people. And he said, they weren't the greatest generation. Their parents were. Wow. Their parents made them the people they were. And I hear this hundreds of times a year through emails and phone calls, et cetera. The the new guys, they, you know, they're all texting on their phones. They're all, you know, it's a different generation and they're complacent and they don't. And and I have one simple answer for all your listeners. It's your fault. Your standard becomes whatever you allow. And if that old, so I don't say discipline. I say, hey, hey, listen, John, with that, that's not the way we work on this base. We, we, don't, we don't do that here. We're, we're a pretty tight ship. Phones are put away. That's just not tolerated here. You didn't, you didn't break a rule, but that's kind of not the way we do things. And you don't want to tell them the story of, you know, the way old Captain Smith was. He wouldn't. Know. That, they don't care about a history lesson. They need to know from you that the performance that they're doing, whatever that is, complacency, station activities, not cleaning, not house, do it, whatever, whatever it is, whatever you allow to happen without your intervention becomes your standard. So if you have younger people underneath you that are not performing to your standard, don't call me and tell me about it. Fix it. Yeah, the idea of extreme ownership. Every problem is your problem. And you could blame it on generational gaps or whatever you want to blame it on. But it's your job, if you are the leader or even the individual, to fix whatever the perceived problem is or whatever the problem legitimately is. Don't blame it on anything else because you're just creating a bigger problem. Take it on and own it and fix it. Yeah, there you go. Chief, you've hit on a whole lot on leadership. You've hit a whole lot on training. You mentioned stamina earlier, right? Stamina as being kind of one of the more important leadership traits. What are your top three leadership qualities that you think a company officer should possess if you had to have top three? Uh, it's, it's stamina, empathy, 
And I think you have to be technically competent. You have to be technically sound. You got to be able to know what you're talking about. And people have to have faith in you. And part of the way you get faith is through technical competence. And I think empathy is that you have some concern and caring for your people. And I think you, the, the other one, I guess, if you throw out stamina, the other one would be consistency. They don't need to know what Chief Lamb's coming to work today. They need to know that the same one that was here yesterday is probably the same one that's here today. So I think that that consistency, uh, empathy, and technical competence makes a good company officer. Yeah, great advice, Chief. I have to agree. I also really like using the word humility, or I like humility. I think humility is important, and I'm sure you could categorize that in empathy in a couple of those categories. But So, Chief, uh, we really appreciate your time. You shared a whole lot of great things. Hopefully, it's not the last time we talk with you. But do you have any final thoughts before we wrap this up? No, I, I, I want to, uh, you know, you are a military force. I want to say thank you to all of the people that are serving that might hear the sound of my voice here. Uh, you're, you're appreciated. Sometimes you're underappreciated, but uh, there are a lot of people such as myself that grew up uh, understanding what our military has done for all of us. Um, you guys happen to be military and firefighters, so I'm all on board on that. <laughs> so uh, I would just ask if I can put the shameless plug in. So uh, I have the Firefighter Training Podcast. You can find it in all the places. I have been dormant for a couple of months, a lot of things going on. Uh, but there, if you're bored, uh, there are probably 310 episodes out there. I've been doing this for six years. So uh, there's some good information out there. There are some guests, as you pointed out. And if you go to my website, PeteLamb.com, you can find a bunch of stuff. Uh, also, if people are looking, uh, I, it, it's funny, there's a big push now in the coronavirus to do online training. I've been doing online training for departments for a while because they can't afford to bring people out there in some cases. So... Um, I'm, I'm available to help out. I appreciate the opportunity to uh, talk to your group and uh, hopefully we made some sense. Yeah, Chief, it, it was an absolute pleasure having you. And you could be found on Twitter as well, right? Yeah. So uh, Pete Lamb, just string it all together, Pete Lamb on Twitter. I am not a Facebook person. And unfortunately for the world, there is another fire chief, Peter Lamb, that is on Facebook. It's not me. <laughs> <laughs> Same name. <laughs> well, Chief, thanks again. And uh, hoping for the best for your department and, and for you as we work through this coronavirus pandemic. I, I really hope that uh, everything turns out well for you guys. Um, so please stay safe. I appreciate it. Thank you for the opportunity. Yes, sir. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Fire Dog Podcast. You can find more content just like this regularly posted to our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash the Fire Dog Podcast. That's facebook.com forward slash the Fire, D-A-W-G Podcast. Please like, subscribe, share with your friends and coworkers. And if you've liked what you've heard so far, don't forget to rate this episode wherever you listen to your podcasts. This is host Matt Wilson with co-host Ben Perry and guest Chief Peter Lamb. Until next time, stay safe. <laughs>